0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, after uh, we finished the show yesterday, I went up to Capitol Hill to uh, meet with a a colleague of mine, and and I said to him, listen, I have to get out of here relatively uh, soon because there's a big storm coming. And he said, no, no, I just checked my, my, uh, my phone, and it's not going to start raining till 6, and you'll be out by 6. I said, well, my phone says it's oh, no. going to start raining at 4, and I don't want to be stuck on Capitol Hill. Well, needless to say, at 4.30, I told him I really have to go. I go downstairs. There are no, no windows in his office. I go downstairs, and for only the second time in my life, I see a car being carried away by water. Mm -hmm. down new jersey avenue that's how bad this storm was i'm hard-pressed to think of the last time where i saw a storm where we had three and a half hours of continuous lightning incredible just incredible you know and, and washington's one of those places where you know we have summer storms it's humid they usually come in the afternoons. That's just, you know, the area that we live in. But this was ridiculous.
1: They also don't, the swamp is not just a metaphor, No, right? no, like the swamp it's an is actual swamp. So the, the ground is pretty saturated a lot of the time. And so like, yeah, getting a little standing water, you know, it, is not unheard of. I went, I went to take some supplies to another friend who um, has the plague right. I'm not traveling around giving COVID to everybody, but I got in my car and I drove over to a friend's house who also has COVID and I was driving back. I had to drive through three, uh, two different spots where I actually thought my car was going to stall out and I was going to have to get out because the water was, the water was up over my, as high as my front tires.
0: Yeah. It's not. Yeah. I, I actually couldn't walk straight to the, to the Metro. I, I sat for 45 minutes thinking it would clear up. It didn't clear up. I had an umbrella. So, um, I walked out of the building and I, I physically couldn't get to the subway because the streets were flooded and the water was so high. So I had to go down to the National Gallery of Art, which is like four blocks away, and then cut up underneath the Department of Labor um, to, to finally get to the, to the metro. It was, it was, it was insane.
1: We've had some big storms this summer. Hey, John, speaking of art, did you see this story? I think it was in the Washington Post about this new exhibit at the Met that uh, yeah. is demonstrating that uh, that your people have always been tacky. Is that the idea
0: behind yeah, it? Yeah, that, that seems to be the idea behind it. the The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has a show where, you know, one of the things that most people don't realize is all these ancient Greek and ancient Roman statues that have been found over the millennia, They were actually painted in colors, and the paint is all worn off. Well, it turns out that these colors were like bright, gaudy, awful colors, and everybody looked like Harlequins. Mm -hmm. And so they've been able to piece it all together, and they have some examples of these awful, horrible costumes that
1: these statues had. It, it makes a big difference. It really does. I mean, obviously you can't take away oh. from the, like <laughs> the artistry of the sculpt, the sculpting or sculptures, right? right like you can't, right. that's, that's incredible. And there's a reason we still look at it, you know, whatever, but it is pretty funny when you slap a bunch of paints on top of it and you, you understand uh-huh. just how much, you know, how much uh, uh, color or different things affect uh, aesthetic changes really affect your, assessment of the quality of something you know what yeah, i mean right like this incredible piece of stonework is suddenly uh suddenly becomes kitsch when it's painted and yes. it just shows how how subjective all of this stuff is and how sort of culturally rooted it all is and how much uh of our sort of understanding of like the you know what western art is built upon yes. is a is misunderstanding. I don't know. It's fascinating to me. I think I think this kind of stuff is really cool. Sorry though. I'm sorry about your Oh heritage. no,
0: but you're exactly right. You know, you look at <laughs> you look at the Venus de Milo and you say, "Oh my god, it's magnificent." Right? And then you look at the Venus de Milo wearing a clown outfit and it's not so magnificent. Mhm. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Hey, I want to ask you about something that um You just put into uh, our script that's breaking news. Somebody apparently is attacking the FBI uh, building in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, What's going on with that? Do you know?
1: That's the last that I saw. Somebody somebody went in and was making threats and was presumed to be armed. And then this person took off. Uh, ran down a highway. So police chased him down a highway. That is all that I know at the moment.
0: It says he's he's now firing at police from a cornfield.
1: Yeah, this is what I, the last I saw was those were unconfirmed reports. So who knows? Maybe they have been confirmed by this moment. Joe, I don't know anything about what the motivation might be. Of course, there is a lot of speculation that this has something to do with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, uh, not yesterday, but the day before yesterday. Don't know if any of that is the case, but it, I guess it wouldn't be that surprising if they were related, although plenty of people have reasons to have grievances with the FBI. But yeah, I mean, if that is the reaction, that has come pretty swift. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, unfolding now
0: happening as we speak. And and we'll try to update people. Listen, I made a mistake on the show yesterday, and uh, one of our listeners uh, has been beating me about the face and head to correct Oh, it. No. Um So I said that uh, the shooter in Albuquerque apparently was Shia and he was killing Sunnis. he's Sunni and he was killing Shia. Now, what we did not know at the time was that he actually knew two of the victims, so I said it yes. was apparently okay, random. That's what I thought yeah, I said it was apparently random it was apparently random yesterday. well, now today it's not apparently random, so the facts are changing uh, anyway, sorry uh, if any um. Any Shias were offended by uh, by my uh, mistake.
1: We should really come. There should be a label. You know, uh, information is changing rapidly. Be sure to check back. That's what
0: we need. We should put a label. Yes. On the rumble.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I right. I
0: think I know where we can hey, find you know, one that's um, already made.
1: Twitter is getting ready to do a bunch more labeling ahead of the oh, midterms. No. It's uh, it's come out with its strategy to protect the U.S. midterm elections, which just sounds like a lot of it is very reasonable, right? Covers uh, what it calls harmful misleading information, such as claims about how to participate in a civic process, like how to vote, misleading content intended to intimidate or dissuade people from participating, and misleading claims intended to undermine public confidence in an election. Uh, but you know, like I don't think you should be able to say, "Yeah, you know, the vote was yesterday," or "Oh, everybody go here to vote" when it's not true. You know, that kind of stuff seems to be, you know, pretty straightforward. But it does start to go off the rails. Twitter announces that it is bringing back its prebunks, so pre-bunks in multiple languages to get ahead of misleading narratives on Twitter and proactively address topics that may be the subject of misinformation. And so you could just have a huge blinking light behind you that says Hunter Biden's laptop, right? Um, because I'm for sure that that was pre-bunked to within an inch of its life by being called ahead of time uh, Russian disinformation and and the like. And so, you know, Twitter is announcing here that it is planning to directly get ahead of information that somebody doesn't really like
0: true or not. I wanted to add something too that. You've uh, flagged for us Uh, and it's from our friend, Ford Fisher Ford. um, Yeah. And this is, this is a big deal to me. Uh, Ford has tweeted a job posting by the IRS, the internal revenue service. Uh, They're looking for uh, special agents, right? So, so internal cops for the, uh, for the IRS. And it says, you know, you have to adhere to the highest standards of conduct, honesty, integrity, blah, 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 work a minimum of 50 hours a week, be on call 24-7, all this usual silliness. Maintain a level of fitness necessary to effectively respond, get this, to life-threatening situations on the job. I'm, I'm unaware of life-threatening situations at the IRS, but okay, that's fine. Carry a firearm. That's odd, but get this, be willing to use deadly force if necessary. Yeah. Be willing and able to participate in arrests, execution of search warrants, and other dangerous assignments. It's a flippin' IRS cop, and they're telling people you have to be willing to use deadly force. I'm I'm very troubled by this. I've tweeted it, and it's got a bunch of retweets already, but this really disturbs me. And I I tweeted also that, you know, this is there are the same kinds of armed police trained to kill at the Department of Education, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Environmental Protection Agency, now the IRS. Why? Why do we need more cops, more armed cops and train them to kill people?
1: Was it at the Department of Energy? where uh, some guy recently was brought down because he was trying to do like commando training for exactly this, like the DOE needed uh, its own SWAT team or whatever. I can't remember. I know that this happened, but I can't remember the department. I'm pretty sure it was energy. I'm not I'm not entirely sure.
0: Incredible. You know, there was an incident. Yeah, yeah, they want to be cowboys. There was an incident um, with an education department SWAT team where they broke into an employee's house, 6 a.m., it was a raid, they broke the door down uh, because they believed he had some documents in his home that belonged to the Department of Education. This is during the George W. Bush administration. And it just so happened that he was married to a, a reporter for the Washington Times. They went into the den that was actually her den And they confiscated her confidential notes, her journalist notes, and they took them. And that's why it was in the paper. You know, it was a big deal. They had to go to court and turn the notes back over. But why in the world is the Department of Education breaking down somebody's door at six o'clock in the morning with guns drawn and doing a raid?
1: Yeah, it's outrageous. There's no reason for that. Why why even have police if everybody's going to have their own police squad, you know? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Also, John. Sorry. Do we still? We still don't know what made uh, this house in Evanston, Indiana, explode. No,
0: we don't know. You know, there's speculation that it was a gas or leak. Evansville.
1: Sorry. Yeah, there's speculation. I mean, that would be.
0: That's the logical. But I mean, it could have been a meth lab for all we know. We don't know. But did you see the video of it? Oh my God! The there was there was a security camera down the block that captured the entire event. This house, I'm not exaggerating. This house was blown to smithereens. Like, it's just splintered. There's nothing left of it. I've never seen anything like that.
1: The fact that we haven't heard reports yet about um, people smelling gas or whatever yeah. makes me wonder if this is going to turn out to be something else like a like a meth lab because I feel like right. the many other times this has happened in the United States, uh, it's pretty clear that it's gas from the start. So it still could be. But this is one of the things that I have been really wanting to get into for a long time and been sort of frustrated in my efforts to find a, an energy infrastructure expert to talk about this. Why, why is the United States having, why are people's houses blowing up over gas leaks, man? There were a bunch, in the United States of America. a couple years ago in the, in the Northeast, right? There was a big one in Massachusetts. I think in a couple of other places, it felt like there was a period for a couple of years where there'd be a gas, you know, there were a bunch of gas explosions, and again, just aren't we? Hey, don't we hold ourselves up as like the best of the best, where the, you know, the pinnacle of of human aspiration, uh, where everyone comes to fulfill their dreams? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't our gas infrastructure be a little bit better? You would think. And I feel like there is a there's a larger story here to be told about the way we've allowed our uh, our utilities to become merely, you know, vehicles for making a a small cohort of people extremely wealthy instead of for, you know, being the kind of public utility services for the public good that they should be. And this is the result. And it's one of these sort of stories of a long, slow corrosion of something in the United States that we are not paying attention to, but that's actually literally killing people.
0: You know, every time we have a, a big storm, the power goes out. Sometimes it'll go out two, three, four times. And um, we had an au pair when I was still married. We had an au pair living with us from Thailand, and she commented one time that the power goes out more often here than it does in Bangkok.
1: <laughs> she was yep. shocked by it. I've I've told this story before on the show, but I'm never going to stop telling it. When my friend from Kazakhstan visited the U.S., and mind you, he went he went to Washington D.C. and New York. You know. He wasn't uh, in the middle of nowhere. He wasn't in Mississippi or whatever or what, traveling around West Virginia. And when he came back and I asked him what surprised him, he said, I thought your roads would be better. Yeah. 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 I think we deserve better roads, too. Hey, I I know we have our next guest on the line and we should go, but I just want to I want to have a little old fogies conversation with you for a minute. John. Okay. So the, the Daily Beast and Yahoo News are using swear words in their headlines. Now. I, s- I saw that. Did you see this? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> the headline is Ukrainian secret agents are scaring the Kremlin crapless with deadly explosions and covert poison ops. But they don't. They say a word that we can't say on the air. It's, it's we, on our, look,
0: our list of banned words that we uh, we can't say. Yeah. Got it right here in my hand.
1: Every day I is. come and do this job. I am astonished that I haven't yet sworn on air because off air I do it probably <laughs> too much. Yeah, right. Too. But I have managed so far. Through the grace of whoever, um, so like, look, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of a well deployed swear word, but I, I'm going to say I don't think we need. The, I don't think we need them in in newspaper headlines, right? I, I don't agree. think that's necessary. I agree. Let them be. Let them be sort of the the color commentary part of this, you know.
0: And and on these same lines, did you happen to see the clip from Beto O'Rourke uh, from his town hall meeting yesterday?
1: But that's kind of his brand, it right? Is.
0: It, he figures, listen, I'm going to lose anyway. I might as well call this guy an mf'er.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a pretty big <laughs> swear. That's a pretty serious, you know, it's, it, up, it it's up on the list. It's not the top, but it's up there.
0: Oh, and listen, I just got a push notification. Roller coaster derailment at Legoland in Germany injures at least 34 people. Oh, no. That's what you want to see. That's awful.
1: <laughs> well, we are... Let's- <laughs>
0: We're pushing our, our luck with our next guest. He's he's always got he's always so full of amazing information, and here I'm taking his time. So yeah. we should tell our, our listeners we've got a great lineup today. We have Mark Sloboda, Juan Jose Gutierrez, we have Mustafa Santiago Ali and Ken Surin. We have a lot more coming up, so stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits here in Washington DC. We're on Radio Sputnik, and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriaku here with Michelle Witty. If you follow Ukraine news in the U.S. press, you would be reading today that McDonald's is returning to Kiev because the war has turned around. You would be reading that Russian reports that a Ukrainian Heimar rocket killing 50 prisoners of war a week ago was a Russian fabrication. You would be reading that the Ukrainian military has launched an offensive to retake Crimea and that Russian soldiers, according to the Daily Beast, are scared crapless about the bombs constantly raining down on them. Of course, we don't actually know if any of this is true or if it's partially true or if it's true today and it may not be true tomorrow. In other news, foreign ministers from the G7 are demanding that Russia hand control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Back to Ukraine. The Ukrainians maintain that the Russians are launching attacks against them from the plant, knowing that the Ukrainians can't respond. And China has wound down its military exercises off the coast of Taiwan, initiated in response to the visit to the island by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's visit to Taipei lasted only two days, but it appears to have, been, to have set back Sino US relations by years. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst. And Mark, it's always good to have you.
2: John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits.
0: The pleasure is ours. We we had a guest on yesterday, uh, Mark, whom I asked about Crimea. And I want to ask you the same question that I asked him. Why would the Ukrainians essentially open a second front in the war by moving into Crimea, or at least by by beginning to bomb Crimea? Are they truly able to fight a two-front war?
2: I, I'm curious. Who was the guest?
0: It was, uh, who was it, Michelle? Who do, you know what? Here, I have it right here. It was David Wallalu.
2: Okay, um, so first of all, full disclosure: uh, my wife is Crimean, and I have family in Crimea. My my uh, in-laws are in; they live in Simferopol. Uh, so, um, you know, um, I think I have kind of an inside line on the perspective of the Crimean people. I spend part of every year there, and have for, you know, the last couple of decades. So, um, I know the area pretty well. Um, first of all um it, the Kiev regime is not capable of an offensive against crimea that's just ridiculous it's it's fantasy talk it's like uh it's like saying that you know uh Iran is going to invade miami beach right i mean it's it's it's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous um even Deutsche Well, I mean, it's playing off of this current thing. This is all generated by Zelensky, who came out with another fantastic statement about as real as his previous statements about the ghost of Kiev or the Snake Island hoax, that this conflict will end with the regime, you know, taking Crimea back. Okay, and. Even Deutsche Welle actually came out with a, a a piece on this, you know, playing off of this tide of the Western press reporting on this. And they said, could, could, uh, you know, Kiev really take back Crimea and their end assessment is no, no, it's not. It's not possible. And one of the things they noted as the primary thing is that, you know, 90 90- – 5% plus of the population there wants nothing to do with the regime in Kiev, didn't want to in the beginning. And, I mean, if the if we were going into a fantasy scenario where after built, reorganizing their military around the world for about five years, the U.S. and the rest of the NATO military powers uh, – uh, Mustered the capability and decided to uh, invade Crimea in some type of rehash of the Crimean War that somehow did not end up as nuclear. Eventually, they might succeed, but they'd have to genocide off ninety-five percent of the population, or at least you know uh, drive them out of out of the Crimea. It's 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 fantasy talk, right? Um, a few sabotage attacks, if indeed that's what it was, right? And the Western. Media is jumping on this. The Kiev regime has made no such official claims that that they uh, are responsible for this. This uh, we have an anonymous source, supposedly from the Ukrainian military, who spoke to the New York Times, who claims that that the Kiev is responsible for this um, without. Any details without uh, of how it happened and so on, the the Russian government has has been kind of vague intentionally, obviously because they're conducting an investigation into what happened, saying that there were explosions of ammunition there, and that's that's perfectly clear. It is at an airfield uh, in Saki, which is just about 40 kilometers uh, northwest of Simferopol. Um, Now, uh, there have been satellite uh, photos released from commercial Western sources. Assuming these photos are not doctored, that they can be believed, um, it does seem that eight Russian aircraft were either uh, destroyed or, or damaged uh, in the explosions. Russia says the exp- ammunition exploded. They don't say how. Locals report no missile strike, I mean, no signs of any types of missiles or anything like that. And to be perfectly honest, unless Unless the U.S. is secretly supplying the U.S. with a tactical ballistic missile uh, that they have not revealed to the world, it is extremely unlikely that Kiev possesses the capability of hitting this airfield from any territory that they control. Or it's extremely unlikely that any of their aircraft, the the handful that they have left, were able to penetrate that far. The the Crimea has – Higher air defense than pretty much any part of Russia other than Moscow itself, right? Because the Black Sea Fleet is headquarters there. There's some serious S-400s, S-500s. You know, it's, it's extremely well defended and nothing went off. So this either was an accident and regardless of whether it was an accident or not, there was some poor military um, operations there. Uh, that, that are pretty obvious from these uh, uh, US-released satellite photos. Uh, the um, airfield, it does have hardened um, protective barriers around each airplane um, parking space, basically, um, that are designed to prevent, prevent them from damage. And there are also hardened concrete bunkers for ammunition, and it seems that in in several instances, this simply wasn't being used. The ammunition was being kept too close to the planes. It was not all being kept in the protected areas. And uh, some of the planes were not even parked within their protective um, shelters, if you were. They were close to each other on the tarmac. So um, I, I think that there will probably be some some repercussions for some brass uh, who made decisions that, that whether it was an accident or an act of sabotage, which is the most likely. It, it is entirely possible it was an act of sabotage. Um, I mean, there are long, CNN has actually reported this there are long streams, train you know trains of um, cars of Ukrainians trying to get from Kiev-controlled territory uh, in Zaporozhye uh, and Kherson into Russian-controlled territory every day. I mean, hundreds and hundreds at every checkpoint. It is entirely possible that Kiev is is filtering uh, some saboteurs through. That 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 is very right um, and. I mean, people are able to get into Russia and Crimea from other sources. You know, domestic airlines flying from Kaz. Cos- I mean, it's it's an it it's Fairly easily be done. Uh, the, again, the other possibility is that the U.S. is providing them with a secret weapon, probably with GPS uh, guidance and targeting and telling them what to hit as well, which would mean that there is an open war uh, now between the U.S. Uh, and Russia to nuclear arms. Yeah, that's the other. Well, that's that, the other that
0: actually that, – that leads to the next question too. You know, we saw this news yesterday that the Ukrainians – um, are in possession of missiles that are far more sophisticated than what uh, we have heretofore been told. That was really just barely a blip in the in the U.S. media. Um, do you think the Ukrainians have uh, more advanced missiles that we've provided these missiles and just never released the information to the press?
2: It is entirely possible. We just found out about this one. This type, this specific missile would not have. Been used for that. Uh, this is an what the, the what has been revealed by one of the U.S. undersecretaries for defense is that the U.S. has supplied Kiev with uh, AGM-88 Harms. These are high-speed anti-radiation missiles. They are an air-to-surface missile. That is, they are supposed to be fired from aircraft, and therefore taking out um, the radar. Um, components of air defense systems. These are designed to defeat Russian defense systems. Um, And I mean, Russia has their own equivalent of this type of thing, but it is more sophisticated than anything that Kiev has uh, certainly, you know, currently in their arsenal. And there is some evidence that at one Russian air defense site, uh, the fragments of these missiles were found a week ago, which is what generated the whole story. Um, And um, it, it now the big question there is, is what actually fired these because supposedly they can only be fired compatible with NATO aircraft and no NATO oh my aircraft God. supposedly has been supplied to Kiev. Um, and there is the idea they maybe quick had a workaround to apply it to uh you know uh soviet era type aircraft you know, some of the migs uh, but there 's no indication that 's true. No other NATO allies who still fly Soviet aircraft you know in Eastern Europe you know, former Warsaw Pact have indicated that that they have uh, the capability to fire these missiles so either. Um, or there is the possibility that Northrop Grumman came up with an an, an ability to land – launched them but that uh, you know was worked on a few years ago and supposedly didn't pan out no one's heard anything about it so either um, the u.s supplied the aircraft to fire these made a workaround for Soviet aircraft or it was fired from NATO control from NATO aircraft uh, in the Black Sea or uh, you know uh, possibly um, on on the edge of uh, Ukrainian territory um, and uh, that's probably the more frightening Uh, possibility. Uh, So uh, we definitely are getting closer to the escalation cycle of direct Russian-NATO conflict in in both such instances. And as we see increasingly, you know, uh, these weapons are still a trickle. And if anything, it seems more that NATO is using Ukraine as a lab to test its weapons, a small amount of its weapons on Russian systems. That that seems to be more what's going on here than any mass supply of weapons that could turn, uh, you know, the the balance in in Kiev's favor. Which I I don't think that if the U.S. supplied them with nuclear weapons, that 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 would you know, change the inevitable result here. Uh, And I don't believe that the U.S. is currently capable of the type of industrial war that Russia is, you know, engaged in in Ukraine. And there have been reports uh, from the uh, Royal United Services Institute in the U.K., uh, a government affiliated military think tank um, that. Uh, the return of industrial warfare—an excellent piece to read—that basically says that you know the West isn't geared up for this type of war. They, their entire military-industrial complex is geared not towards producing artillery shells and multiple uh, rockets for multiple launch rocket systems and the like, which is the type of war being waged. But they're geared up for high high-end items and and fighting counterinsurgents and third-world countries. And th- it would take them years to reconfigure their military-industrial complex, to 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 even continue to provide Kiev with the type of, uh, you know, the uh, amount of artillery uh, to, to uh, be used on these NATO systems like the M777s with uh, artillery pieces, which is pretty much all they have left at this point that they're capable of firing, much less to engage themselves. And according to all reports, NATO countries are seriously dipping into their own you know, stockpiles of, of artillery shells and weapons and so forth that they would use in any theoretical, uh, conventional conflict with Russia, direct conflict. So, um, I, 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 there's simply, I don't think, I think this is more testing and, you know, raising some costs and, and about propaganda victories. Uh, but it's still, you know, you they make a big deal out of uh something that occurred in the like Crimea that takes out a few aircraft and and yeah there's there's serious concerns about operations there and you know other a few other big ticket items but when the same amount of damage is being unloaded to the Kiev regime 60 to 70 times every day in such instances that do are not covered in the Western media. The writing is on the wall. This is more about psychological warfare, information warfare. And amazingly enough, most of the targets are Western taxpayers who are the ones funding this. So,
0: yeah, sure. I remember having a conversation with you years ago in which we talked about how uh, Back when I was at the CIA, we used to love it when the Israelis and the Syrians, for example, would get into it, especially when there were dogfights, because that was the only real life battle testing we could do of American equipment versus Russian equipment. And this is another one of those examples where we just give the give the Ukrainians whatever they want and let them test it against the Russians. And then, you know, use that to uh, to improve the system.
2: There's an excellent book that touches just on that. Fox bats over Demona. Read it.
0: (laughs) Good stuff. Let me ask you real quickly about this uh, Zaporizhia plant. Why is this so important? It's getting a lot of coverage here in the U.S.
2: Okay, so, I mean, this plant in Zaporozhia, Zaporozhia nuclear power plant is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Right. It's big. It's big. It produces a lot of power, and all right, uh, Russia has had the plant under their control for months now. All of the Ukrainian staff are still running it, just as as what happened when Russia was occupying Chernobyl uh, briefly at the uh-huh. beginning of the conflict. I remember that.
0: And yes, the energy
2: being produced is still providing regime controlled areas of Ukraine with energy, because right because i don't know why actually i mean <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that the kremlin is sometimes uh, more um shall we say uh, beneficent than i would be in, in a similar situation um but um so i mean uh, the plant is being shelled uh, and the plant uh, the uh, Russian uh, forces occupying it, you know again on hands off they're they're not running the plant. Um, you know say of course if the Kiev regime, which is the most likely scenario. the claims that the Kiev regime is making is that Russian forces are occupying the plant they're storing weapons uh, and launching attacks from there, knowing that the Kiev regime can't respond to it, which of course they are. But they're not, and the Russian forces are shelling themselves in that plant. I mean, does that make, you know, do, do you follow that logic? Because I, I have, think so. I have to admit that I'm, I think you. It's confusing. Be, I think you need to be on some serious drugs to, to, to make any <laughs> uh, coherent uh, story out of all that. I don't think even the Western media or or governments are buying this line. But they're, you know, they're kind of going with it without, you know, directly saying, you know, what they're saying is true. They're simply saying that that Russia should hand back uh, control uh, of the plant uh, completely, you know, politically uh, to the Kiev regime. And well, Russia right. also says that the U.S. should hand back Syria's oil fields and wheat fields in East Syria that they're still military occupying. But neither one of those things is likely to happen anytime in the near future. Now, there is a right. big deal being made out of This because this generates headlines, and one of the big things that the Kiev regime is constantly afraid of is that the West, the Western publics, Western politicians will lose interest in them, and then that will result in a. We're already in many ways seeing, uh, in terms of amount of systems, artillery systems, and other things, um, that the um, amount of Western military aid being supplied to the Kiev regime is is decreasing. It's, it's going down. Yeah. Now, um, there is uh, – so how serious is this? Russia's making a big deal out of it, saying it could be another Chernobyl. Um, it seems that most of the Kiev regime strikes have been at the spent fuel facilities. Um, essentially, they're – They're trying to hit used fuel stored adjacent to the plant to try to create a a de facto dirty bomb type thing on what would be their own territory because, hey, nuclear scorched earth, right? Uh, But more than likely, it's just to generate attention because – this plant was built seriously, right, and it was, you know, uh, uh, built and, and adjusted in the aftermath of Chernobyl. This thing is designed to protect against nuclear natural disasters, right, like earthquakes, you yeah, the like right. and man-made incidents such as air crane airplanes directly hitting the n- nuclear reactor, right. That's how hardened Jeez. this thing is, right? Um, yes. Uh, According to a uh, nuclear plant expert at London's Imperial College, Mark Wenman, I do not believe there would be a high probability of a breach of the containment building even if it was accidentally – accidentally – struck by an explosive shell and even less likely that the reactor itself could be damaged by salt. And he went on to say that even the spent fuel is also stored in very robust steel and concrete containers that are designed to withstand very high energy impacts. So I think a little bit more is being made out of this uh, than is being done. But at this point, on at least four occasions, possibly five, the regime forces have shelled the territory of the plant Doing no serious damage, but certainly generating a zillion firestorms on in the media and social media.
0: One last question. Um, actually, I have a whole ton of questions, but we're running out of time. Uh, another thing that's getting a lot of coverage here in the in the U.S., as you might imagine, and it probably shouldn't be, uh, is the fact that the U.S. wants to trade. Uh, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan uh, for Victor Boot. Uh, the, you know, these things normally are not uh, litigated in the, in the press. They're not, um, they're not laid out for all to see the details. They're usually very private. They're done through intelligence channels. This one's different. Um, how is this playing out in the Russian media? Is it like it's playing out in the American media?
2: Um, well, I, I have to say that it's rather a minor Issue in the, the Russian yeah. media, um, obviously, uh, um, and it's certainly tied in, you know, with the fact that Ru- the U.S. pursued this uh, uh, drug witch hunt against U.S. Olympic athletes, and the fact that this American wow, uh, Olympic point. athlete fell into Russian hands with uh, cannabis vape cartridges in her luggage, um, and uh, you know, I, I. I The Russian government, you know, Threw the book at her through the harshest measures, you know that they could uh, in some type of yes. shade and fraud. Now it has to be said that there's plenty of people in the U.S. in prison on even more unfair situations about marijuana possession. Say that again, all right, In some yep. states in the United States. But that said, right? She probably could have gotten off with some community service or something like that if it wasn't for the political tensions of the situation. Uh, Russia has basically said uh, in at least least what they've said publicly uh that uh you know two for one is not a deal and they've suggested throwing in a uh uh, a chechen held by um the german government the germans who is wanted for um supposedly assassinating a chechen terrorist that the german government was providing asylum to uh because you know Two for two, two for, you know, so on, uh, quid pro quo, um, and uh, these negotiations are supposedly going on behind closed doors. We'll see if anything actually uh, comes from it, uh, but uh, it's certainly not as receiving the celebrity treatment as, as it is in the U.S. Because uh, you know the, the 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 person on the Russian side who's being uh, you know is a uh, you know weapons trader. I'm, I yes. I I find that whole thing a little interesting you know he was actually caught uh in southeast asia and extradited to the us over the head of russian law um and he is uh you know was charged for providing weapons uh in particular to rebels in Colombia, which is all the more amusing because the U.S. supplies weapons to more dictators than any other country in the world. So them charging anyone with arms smuggling is a little ridiculous. And particularly in Colombia, when the people there have now elected a former FARC rebel as their leadership uh, in what is certainly a blow to U.S. influence in the region. So I guess you could say that in the end, Victor Bout kind of won that one.
0: Mark Sloboda, thank you so much for joining us. Mark, is an international affairs and security analyst and he joined us from moscow you're listening to political misfits right here on radio sputnik we'll take a short break and come right back
1: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Whitty. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to take a look at uh, some immigration issues in the United States right now, talking about the Remain in Mexico policy that is finally officially rescinded as of this week. We're going to take a look at what all that border surveillance is really doing and uh, check in on this legal challenge that DACA is facing and ask whether this should be getting a lot more attention than it actually is. Joining us for these conversations is Juan Jose Gutierrez. He's an immigration lawyer and he's executive director of the Full Rights for Immigrants Coalition. Uh, Juan Jose, thanks for joining us again.
3: Hi, Michelle and John. Uh, Thanks for inviting me.
0: Welcome back.
1: Let's talk about the the Trump era remain in Mexico policy. Uh, I think it was as of Tuesday, it was officially over. The Biden administration had to fight for this outcome in court. Then they had to wait for some different legal processes to play out. Then they waited a little bit more for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me. But the policy is now lifted. It had required asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for immigration hearings in the U.S., now they'll be able to wait in the United States for their cases to be heard. And I have two questions on this to start with. One, you know, just what what is this gonna mean immediately for asylum seekers and other migrants at the southern border? And kind of a related question, you know, is the U.S. prepared? Is the U.S. prepared to now house and accommodate the people that we had tried in, to turn into uh, Mexico's responsibility for so many years?
3: Uh, Michelle, uh, to answer both your questions, I think it's important to provide uh, context. Uh, And so let us remember that the remaining Mexico policy went into effect two years and eight months ago by order of former President Donald Trump. And when President Joe Biden was sworn in as our current uh, chief executive, he suspended the program. But as you noted, uh, you know, through legal maneu- maneuvers by right-wing state governments, it remained in place for another six months until when, late in June of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Biden administration could end the policy. Over the entire time this policy was in place, about 70,000 asylum seekers were sent to Mexico to wait for their political asylum cases to be heard In immigration court. And in total, a little bit more than 13,000 of these asylees, you know, for a variety of reasons over that time, were allowed to return to Mexico, uh, from Mexico, excuse me, to the U.S. to pursue their asylum cases uh, here in the U.S. And then when President uh, Biden, his first day in office, ordered the Remain in Mexico program ended, you know, the federal court's order his administration to continue enforcing it. And since then, uh, more than 5,000 uh, asylum seekers uh, were sent back uh, to Mexico. Uh, now the Department of Homeland Security has said that when those 5,000-plus uh, asylum seekers next go to uh, their immigration court hearings, they will be allowed to remain in the U.S., Uh, You know, this effectively means that of the total 70,000 asylees that we're talking about, uh, a little bit less than uh, 20,000, you know, uh, they were returned to Mexico uh, are or will, in fact, be able to seek asylum in the safety of the U.S. Uh, The vast majority of the victims of the remaining Mexico policy, more than 50,000, no one knows what happened to them. My best guess is that the vast majority of them returned to their countries of origin or went to live elsewhere in Mexico or somehow uh, gain entry to the U.S. and are residing here uh, as undocumented uh, workers. Now, as to your questions about what this decision uh, to end the program means uh, for asylum seekers uh, who remain in Mexico, you know, the, the first answer is that they will be allowed to gradually return to the U.S. And to, re, and to remain here while their cases make it through the immigration court system. As to the second part of the question about whether the U.S. is prepared to house and accommodate these asylees, I think the answer is yes, because uh, the U.S. government is not going uh, to allow to immediately uh, have these individuals enter the U.S. Uh, you know, they are going to come, they, they be the immigrants, right, the asylees, they're going to come back as their court dates come up. Uh, in other words, they're going to be coming in to the U.S. piecemeal. And so I don't think the U.S. will have a practical problem handling the situation. And I think the U.S. is not thinking of housing or caring for these asylum seekers. I believe, uh, you know, immigrants are going to be told in so many words that they're going to have to fend for themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, that seems to be always the way I kind of want to talk about how how we talk about migrant flows on the southern border, because it seems like for for Republicans, there's a real um, desire to emphasize the number of of potential migrants to suggest that the U.S. is being you know swamped by dangerous criminals. Right. But it also seems sometimes that Democrats just want to deny the numbers of people who are trying to reach the country. And, and, you know, in that circumstance, you end up with the, you know, border facilities that aren't adequately staffed, that aren't adequate to house people who are coming over. And so I wonder, you know, why is it so hard to build an immigration apparatus that actually meets people's needs? I
3: think the reason is because immigration policy along the U.S.-Mexico border is not to care for people, uh, for would-be asylees, you know, or immigrants who are desperate, you know, to come into the U.S. and find us, you know, safety, a job to, you know, put food on the table for their children and their families, a roof over their head, you know, clothing on their, ba- you know, th- their bodies. I mean, you know, basic human everyday concerns. Immigration policy has become entangled in this horrific web of, of half-truths and, 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 and uh, misinformation. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the final result of it is that both Democrats and Republicans view immigration as a problem. Something needs to be controlled and that to the extent possible, you know, and I believe a practical impossibility, Stop uh, altogether, therefore, what they do and what the policy has become is one where the government is most concerned about providing immigration agents border patrol agents uh, with incredible amounts of money so that they can better deal with controlling the you know the immigration flow coming into the u s so that's why you know so much uh, money is being invested by the U.S. government in finding the best possible technology in the world, as well as hiring thousands upon thousands of agents, you know, to turn the, t- the tide back. You know, they want the mm-hmm. American public, you know, who's been misinformed, that we're being invaded. That the most important task of the U.S. government is to safeguard the border and turn the people back. And that's right. And that's essentially what I think tells the story of why we have this broken immigration system and we refuse to, you know, to muster the political will, you know, to adopt the type of policy, you know, that would regulate migration and stop all this nonsense and this cruelty. Uh, you know, they were seen daily all around uh, the U.S.-Mexico um, border.
1: I mean, and the other thing that is getting so much investment, of course, is uh, is technology around the border, surveillance technology, smart technology. And there was a heartbreaking story in The Verge recently detailing the steady increase in high tech surveillance at the border, including, you know, predator drones flying around, uh, tailing migrants from 20,000 feet in the air the steady criminalization of people who attempt to help migrants who are trying to walk across the desert, leaving water or or other supplies for them. And it concludes that all of this surveillance, all of these crackdowns really don't do anything to deter people from trying to cross. They are just ensuring that more people die in the attempt because as easier routes or more well-known routes uh, now just bristle with, with cameras and other surveillance equipment, people are having to take longer, more circuitous, more dangerous routes and dying in the desert. And I I wanted to ask, you know, I think that this sort of goes, also goes unreported. People assume that surveillance means deterrence. And I wonder how we could get the message across that this is not the case, right? Putting these drones in the air doesn't stop the forces that are pushing people toward our border. They just make sure whole, you know, families die in the desert uh, trying to get here.
3: Yeah, well, I think the first... The thing that we need to do, Michelle, is to go back to how the United States was made into a nation. Why did all those Europeans that crossed the oceans uh, to come into America, why did they come? They came because they wanted a second chance. They wanted safety for their families. They wanted, you know, economic opportunity. They wanted to take care of their families of their community, and ultimately, as we're told when we're children, you know, they wanted it to be free. They did not want, you know, to follow the orders of a king and so on and so forth. And that was okay, and we're told that that was heroic and that they were these pioneers, you know, that were rugged and gave all of us a chance to have the type of nation where many people want to come uh, today for the very same reasons that they came in. You know, we have to begin telling the story again, you know, that the people that are coming in today are not different than the European migrants that came to America in search of opportunity. Because the people that are coming in today, you know, just like Europeans before them and many other waves of immigrants that came there after, you know, are forced to come to the U.S., not because it's easy to come in, you know, with all this surveillance and technology that we're talking about, but because they need a safe place to live in, you know, where they can have food and and a job that provides them uh, with needed resources, you know, to put food on the table, a roof over their head, and clothes on theirs and their children's bodies. Uh, That's why, regardless of the dangers, the possibility of physical injury, or even death. And in spite of all the surveillance our government keeps providing to Border Patrol agents, people will continue to risk their lives, you know, to come to the U.S. As long as corrupt and criminal governments remain in place in countries the world over, and as long as economic development in those nations remains a dream, and as long as jobs are lacking, people are going to risk their lives and come in no matter the cost. So if we want to effectively stop migration or slow it down or, or, or bring some order to the immigration flows, we're going to have to become concerned about supporting economic development, not coups you know, where people seek change so they can take matters into their own hands and right the things that are wrong in their countries of origin. Uh, that's really the bottom line. As long as we're unwilling, you know, to start thinking about what's at the root uh, cause of why people want to migrate, leave their loved ones behind, enrich their lives. I mean, we're not going to press our government to come and undertake the foreign policy and the immigration policies that need to be in place to fix our broken immigration system.
1: Yeah, that is really that is really powerful. And of course, it e- echoes our the way we we manage crime, right, where we have one idea that something is a fix that actually isn't a fix. And we just keep throwing money at this one pathway that doesn't lead us to where we want to go. Hey, uh, Juan Jose, we we are coming up on a hard break here, but I have one more question for you. So I'm going to ask you to to stay on the line and I'm going to ask you this last question on the other side of our one o'clock break, because I do want to get an update from you on the state of the court battle against the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, um, because I think that's an important story that's not getting very much attention. So stay on the line. We're gonna go to a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with more news, politics and culture just on the other side of this break. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm still here with my co host, John Kiriaku, and we are continuing our conversation with immigration law- lawyer Juan Jose Gutierrez because I had one more question that I really wanted to get the answer to. So, um, Juan Jose, I wanted to get your thoughts on the future of the, the DACA program, right? This was the Obama era program that allowed people who had been brought to the United States as minors to apply to be able to stay indefinitely, although uh, they do not have exactly the same rights as American citizenship and despite uh, American citizens and despite many promises, uh, there has been no path to citizenship yet made for them. But still, DACA is, uh, is better than nothing, I guess. And it is being challenged in court by a number of states. Uh, and just earlier this month, a judge refused to allow the program to resume accepting applications while the court battle continues. Um, the I don't see a lot of reporting on what exactly is going on in this courtroom and with this case. And so I wanted to just get your your thoughts on this and and whether we should maybe be worried um, that the end of this program is going to be sprung upon us by the courts and we will be caught unprepared.
3: I am very Concern about what's going on with DACA. You know, the public needs to know that we're talking about a program under which close to uh, 700,000 young migrants who were brought to this country as children by their parents have been able to secure work permits that allows them to continue their education or to work lawfully or do both things. Uh, while residing in the United States uh, in a semi normal immigration uh, status. Uh, now, over and beyond the number I just mentioned, last year, and this about, I don't know, uh, I don't know the exact number, but a significant number of additional applicants of DACA benefits filed their applications because a federal judge had ruled that the program needed to be reopened to, you know, to grant the same opportunity to other young migrants eligible to benefit uh, from uh, DACA. Uh, What happened after that is that another federal judge ruled that the prior uh, federal decision, uh, court decision, was wrong and and that no new applicants uh, should be welcomed uh, into the program. And that, as you mentioned, Michelle, left in suspense about 80,000 uh, applicants that applied. You know, in the aftermath of the federal court decision, that they could apply. They pay their fees uh, both to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which are you know the federal agency charged with processing these applications. They pay fees to lawyers and so on and so forth, other individuals that help them. Uh, guide them through the process, and then they got nothing. If that happened, you know, the U.S. government retained these young people's fees without providing them any benefit. You know, that's mm-hmm. anybody buying a ticket to a Dodger game, you know, a baseball game in their city, and, and then not being allowed to go into the stadium, and you get no mm-hmm. re, And you just, you know, you're just told to go home. I mean, that's un American as anything that one can think of. Now, uh, as you said, that's for the people that applied last year and this year. But for those that applied going back to 2012 when the, you know, when the program was initiated under the Barack Obama administration, you know, uh, they're in danger or, of, of, of not being able to continue enjoying the protections of DACA. Because many people, you know governments, state governments, are challenging the the legal basis under which this program was set in place, and so uh, you know i'm I'm very concerned about what's going on because nobody's talking about what happens or what's going to happen to these youth. are they going to mm-hmm. suspend just like the eighty thousand you know that paid for a benefit that they've never received, or what? And I think the most telling event that just happened is what happened in the Senate uh, last Sunday when uh, it voted and approved the anti-inflation legislation and nothing was said about immigration rights, but uh, legal protections for immigrants, not just for the millions that are awaiting some kind of legal relief, You know, the millions of undocumented workers that have been here for nearly uh, four decades, even for individuals that have DACA status, individuals that came in as children for all intents and purposes, are United States citizens. They see themselves as such, and yet they're in danger of uh, losing the limited protections that they've enjoyed since 2012. It's a very bad situation. I think that what happened in the Senate and is about to happen in the House of of Representatives when they also uh, debate and vote on, you know, the anti-inflation legislation that the Senate approved last Sunday. I mean, I think that at that point uh, we have to become seriously concerned that if Democrats in the majority are unwilling uh, to step up and and do something about uh, ensuring long lasting legal protections for this Uh, young men and women, I mean, uh, you know, who's going to help them? Yeah, it's a very bad situation and one that should concern uh, all of us.
1: No, it's really frightening and really shameful that nothing has been done despite all these campaign promises that that we heard. Well, we will certainly keep an eye on on what happens in this court case and what happens with this, uh, you know, the the great signature legislation that the Biden administration is finally perhaps going to manage to pass. Uh, that was immigration lawyer and executive director of the Full Rights for Immigrants Coalition, Juan Jose Gutierrez. Juan Jose, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye bye.
0: Michelle, um, there's no reason to take a break. We can go straight into our next guest, who I think we have uh, waiting for us. Several studies and investigative reports were released today showing that climate change is fueling a barrage of summer floods, that warming temperatures are pushing insect pests farther north where they damage crops and trees, that it's causing unprecedentedly bad fires in California, and get this, that it aggravates and intensifies more than half of all human pathogens. Still, many Americans don't believe that climate change is real. Earlier this week, the Senate passed the Schumer-Mansion Inflation Reduction Act, which included spending on addressing climate change, at least a little bit. We'll talk about that and about politics with our next guest. We're now joined by Mustafa Santiago Ali. He's Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. Welcome back. Good to have you back, Mustafa. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Hey, let's start with this Schumer Mansion bill. It's certainly smaller than the original Build Back Better was, and it's it's slated to spend a lot less on climate change issues that, than the administration had originally uh, wanted. So, with the money that has been approved, where will that likely be spent?
4: Well, you know the the, uh, the transformational thing about this piece of legislation is that when it was pulled together, it looked across the country to make sure that there were wins in it for everyone. Uh, of course. Uh, You know, I'd like to see our most vulnerable communities being, you know, a strong, strong beneficiary of this. But, you know, there are dollars that are in there for those um, as we move toward this clean economy on the transportation side, you know, around the EV tax credits. Um, And now also, uh, you know, if it's a, a used electric vehicle, there are dollars that are there. There are dollars also that are in there for smart agriculture, Um, because we understand that agriculture is going to play a critical role in being able to address. And also there are dollars in there to help us to deal with, you know, the flooding that's happening, the hurricanes and the rush of water that moves forward for us to rebuild our shorelines and those types of things. But there are also dollars in there to rebuild uh, and continue to build out, I should say, our energy infrastructure, um, so that as we move toward the utilization of more electricity for the things that we need to do, that that will be also uh, handled but then we got to get down to the mom and pop types of things that are going on you all know that i was raised in appalachia and in michigan and for those folks that's where the rubber really hits the road. So we're talking about being able to make sure that people's homes are more energy efficient and giving them the dollars to be able to actually accomplish that. We also gotta make sure that when we're talking about wind and solar, that there's not only on the manufacturing side of that, creating those jobs, but also being able to make sure that you know those bills have become more manageable for folks. Um, and we understand that there's much more stability when we utilize renewable energy than when we've traditionally used fossil fuels and we've seen these major spikes that continue to happen. Everyday folks need to have some consistency. They need to know that when they put their budgets together, they're not going to get busted um, by some of these spikes that have traditionally gone on. And and also if folks, you know, back home want to be able to put solar on the roof, then they're going to need help to be able to do that. And there's dollars in there for that as well. Um, And then, of course, for You know, my family, my grandfather was a coal miner. He got black lung. Most of the men that I knew when I was growing up had black lung. So there's actually uh, resources in there for that as well, and also to continue to clean up some of the pollution. And then, of course, there are dollars that are focused on our most vulnerable communities, environmental justice communities, through block grants um, and a number of other dollars around neighborhood access and equity grants. So it is a very holistic uh set of resources. And then of course what we often don't talk about on the climate side of our conversations is also the public health impacts. Um so when we have dollars in there that also help people uh to expand out or to better be able to, you know, pay for the medicine that they need because of the exposures that they've gotten, there's dollars that's there and then of course there's some dollars to also expand uh healthcare coverage. Um so You know, we're thankful for the basics that are there, but there's so much more that needs to be done.
0: Amen to that. I have a handful of conservative friends who reluctantly acknowledge that climate change is real. Uh, They didn't used to acknowledge that it was real, but they finally come around to at least admitting that. But now they still insist that that it's natural and it's not man made, And that's why they don't even want to discuss abatement. Last week, when these devastating floods killed dozens of people in Kentucky. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, asked for emergency federal aid. A year ago, when devastating tornadoes killed dozens of people in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell asked for emergency aid. But he simply will not discuss climate change as an existential problem that has to be dealt with with a long-term uh, uh toward a long-term solution, I guess I could say. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many Americans uh, just will not admit that we have a problem and work to address the problem? It's actually unique among Western democracies. It is,
4: Um, and you know, my work is both domestic and international, and I also try to be a historian uh, when I can. You know, and I went back and, and I took a look at the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and even the 60s um, and, and asked the question, you know, how did we get to in the 70s, in the late 60s and the early 70s, how did we get the National Environmental Policy Act passed? How did we get the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act passed? And, and you saw some dynamics that were going on there. Things had gotten so bad that folks literally couldn't see the sun in many locations across our country because there was so much pollution that's going on. And then many of our water bodies, you know, it's amazing. I used to hear some of the elders used to tell me stories that people could almost walk across some of the water bodies because there was so much trash and pollution and cars and all these other things that were in many of our rivers. Um, So sometimes things just have to get so bad. But here's the dynamic that's different in this moment than before that. And let me just call out the fact, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency was actually founded under a Republican yeah,
0: administration. Absolutely true.
4: Yeah, and Republicans used to see value in that. They also saw value in conservation and a number of other things that are, that are positives, uh, as long as we're looking at them in a holistic way. There are two things that are happening now in this moment that changes from what was going on in the late 60s and early 70s. And that is, it is uh, the politics and the money. Um, If you look now, the huge amounts of money that are being pumped into one side of our political equation, although there are some folks who are on the other side of the aisle who are also uh, benefiting from, from some of those dollars, but primarily there's one side of the equation, and that begins to skew things. And that's why so many folks talk critically about we need to get money out of politics or as much of it as possible out of politics so that we have stronger sets of policy. The other part, is that we have politicians right now who are doing such a disservice by not, you know, alerting, you know, folks across the country to the seriousness of what's going on. And here's what I mean by that. My work over the past almost thirty years now has been rooted in science, in the law, and the realities of what's happening on the ground with everyday folks, and that's my environmental justice work. And you know, folks see what's actually happening, but they refuse to share that with folks based upon science and it's interesting when we are growing up you know our parents push us do well in math do well in science do well in some of the other subject matters that's a part of school but when scientists you know uh, across our planet are very clear with us with what's going on and and some of the things that need to change and then they pass the baton to those who create policy to be able to address the issues that are happening in this moment and that are front in front of us and we fail to act then you have to look at the reasons why folks are failing to act um, because it, it's very clear what's going on. And let me just give you an even further historical because I was thinking about it last night. For those folks who are faith based, um, you know, and, and who have read the Bible or some of the other uh, historical faith based, um, you know, pieces of information or books, if we all go back to the story of Noah, you know, when he was sharing with folks. The seriousness of what was coming, the majority of folks did not pay any attention. Um, So, for those who continue to push and try and educate and highlight for folks, there is somewhat of a historical context, but we have the science now. It's right here in front of us. Uh, Politicians, unfortunately, are using their platforms to do that disservice. And they're benefiting from it financially, unfortunately.
0: Mustafa, can you tell us a little bit about this new study from Harvard University that found that climate change worsens about 58% of human pathogens? This was frightening. I, I had only heard about it this morning. I happened to see it on ABC News. Um, as, climate, as the climate changes, it seems that humans get sicker. Can you tell us a little about that?
4: Yeah, and I would be remiss if I didn't also bring it back to the lessons that the environmental justice leaders have been sharing with folks for decades now, because people have seen, because of sets of exposures, the impacts that were happening inside of their communities, both from pollution uh, and you have locations, you know, in the South and others where folks have been dealing with pathogens as well. Fast forward, that same pollution that has been impacting you know, black and brown and indigenous and lower wealth white communities is now playing a role, of course, in the warming up of the planet. And the study from Harvard shared with us because of these changes that are happening with climate change, we um, are going to see, and also the IPCC has also shared with us that there would be uh, additional impacts that are happening from pathogens. So this study from Harvard reinforced Uh, some of the information that has been shared over the last few years. You know, we also know, and it didn't get as much attention, that when we were currently dealing with the, you know, the pandemic from COVID, that we also knew that it was, you know, uh, having additional sets of impacts in our most vulnerable communities um, because of a number of pre-existing medical conditions that were associated with that. So now with the Harvard study, they're helping folks to understand across our planet that there are going to be um, additional public health impacts that are going on, both from viruses, um, but also from other pathogens that we will be facing. Here's some examples for you. If you go down into the black belt, uh, into the south, we now know that folks are dealing with both West Nile and dengue fever, things that traditionally had been in more tropical zones, but folks are also dealing with hookworm and pinworm. These are things that are not traditionally seen in our country, but because of the changes that are happening uh, from the climate, from the warming up of our you know temperatures, um, that it is now making those types of things have the ability to actually survive and thrive um, inside of our country. You know, we see now you know, the, the we have more animals that are now interacting with people because folks are being pushed closer together and animals that traditionally uh, don't interact with each other are also being pushed closer and closer together um, because of what's happening through the climate crisis. So we have an opportunity to get in front of these things, um, but we have to be very serious and very intentional about the sets of actions that will be necessary.
0: Thank you for that. Let's talk for a moment about politics. The primaries so far show that we're becoming more and more polarized as a country. Uh, This was actually highlighted on today's news on, of all places, Fox. Most of the Republican House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump have lost their primaries, and even the Democratic National Committee has spent millions of dollars to help the most reactionary pro-Trump right-wingers win their primaries with the idea being that they'll be easier to beat in a general election. What do you think of this strategy? Is this not a dangerous risk to the democratic agenda, especially when it comes to something like climate change? It's not a
4: strategy that I would pursue. Um, You know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, being the very prophetic individual that he was, he shared with us, he said, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish as fools. Um, I I see that dynamic playing out now where, you know, we continue to push people further and further apart instead of looking for opportunities to bring folks together because the sets of challenges that we have in front of us are very large, but also the sets of opportunities are even larger if, you know, we do that extra hard work um, of finding commonalities Um, Because, you know, politicians' main goal in many instances is to get reelected, and they will use uh, whatever it takes to be able to do that. And in many instances, that doesn't benefit folks inside of our country. You know, the beauty of the bill that will get signed here um, is that it gives us an opportunity once again to pull folks together and to help them to understand that there are opportunities to help improve their lives, both on the public health side, but also on the economic side. You know, I've worked in over a 1,000 communities across our country and a few outside, and, and you know, one of the big drivers is economics. Um, so when we can help people to understand there's a new set of economic opportunities, not just for you to be a worker in a space, but for you to actually be able to create your own businesses, I can't tell you how many folks that I talk to who get excited um, about the opportunity to be able to create their own business and to be able to give back and to be able to hire folks from their communities or their counties. Um, and so that's one of those examples of how we can bring folks together. I think the other part of it also is, is that, you know, as we begin to roll out some of these things, let's use, you know, trucks as an example. You know, once folks begin to, especially in rural communities, be able to see that, you know, electric trucks um, you know, um, operate in a very similar fashion to what they were driving before, but it's going to be lower sets of costs for them to be able to fuel those vehicles, that they'll be able to pull uh, even greater amounts or carry even greater amounts. You began to create opportunities for deeper sets of conversations on some of the other things that we need to be able to move, move forward on. So going back to your question, you know, I think that we should continue to be focused on bringing folks together. You know, I I love Dr. King, so I often highlight some of his quotes. One of his quotes is that we come to these shores in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. We've (laughs) gotta help folks understand that we're in this boat together and that there is a North Star, that together we can actually address what's happening inside of our country. We can strengthen people economically. We can better help to protect their health. And we can also protect communities. We can protect wildlife, all these things that are critical, because when it comes down to the final analysis of what's happening, this is about mind, body, and spirit. Um, And when we continue to allow the trauma that the climate crisis has brought and will brought, I think about those brothers and sisters in Kentucky in those huge amounts of water that were rushing through their community and stripping away you know, sometimes generations of relationships um, and and of cultural centers and a number of different things. You know, one, we have to be there for folks in that moment, but even in a more significant way, we need to get ahead of the problem. We know what's coming. We have some solutions for what's coming. There will be new ones that need to be developed. And we can't forget folks who are most vulnerable because they're the ones who get hit first and worst and are least likely to be able to recover from what's going on. So I share that with those politicians who might be listening, that your responsibility Is the protection of individuals inside of our country. And you have the ability to actually play a significant role in making that happen. Uh, And and that is our
0: expectation of you. I used to work for John Kerry uh, when he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff. You can say a lot of things about John Kerry. I have, certainly. Uh, But to his credit, he was completely and utterly devoted to addressing climate change. How would you assess the commitment of the two parties right now to addressing climate change? The the Biden administration, of course, is claiming a victory with this Schumer-Mansion bill. But, you know, the Senate is divided 50-50 and the House is barely Democratic. Are the two parties able to work together on any uh, climate change issues or on legislation to address it? Well, You know, here's the interesting thing. They are going to work on climate
4: change. The question is, are they going to do it from a offensive positioning where we are making the investments and helping to educate folks, or will they do it from a defensive positioning where they will you know our country continues um, to have to you know pay huge amounts of money and, and have to, you know, continue to strengthen other parts of our healthcare system because so many folks are being impacted by things we talked about earlier and additional sets of things. So, you know, we have a huge amount of work that needs to happen. Democrats have taken leadership um, in addressing these issues, but there is a historical context for environmental work on the Republican side of the equation. I I think Republican brothers and sisters need to, to go back and look at their history um, and then, you know, play a, a co-leadership role in helping to address what's going on. But they have not done that uh, outwardly in this moment. I will tell you, I spend quite a bit of time uh, on Capitol Hill, more than I probably would like. Um, right. And when the cameras aren't is a whole different set of conversations, which is really mind-blowing that, you know, once the cameras come on or the or the microphones are put in front of you, you say one thing. And then in private, you're like, yes, I know climate change is real. I know we need to address it. But when I go back home, I'm afraid that I'm not going to get reelected if I do the right thing. And What I share with folks is that, you know, no politician is supposed to be there forever. You're supposed to, to do some good work um, and, and then, you know, turn it over to
0: the next set of folks who hopefully will do some good. That is right. I want to ask you uh, one final question. We've all watched the drying up of Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Uh, We're in the process of watching what appears to be the drying up of the Colorado River. You know, Michelle and I joke about finding bodies and barrels and such, but this is deadly serious stuff. Is there any plan at all? to To try to rectify this situation, to save Lake Mead and Lake Powell and the Colorado River? Or w- are we at the mercy of, of climate change on this? We're not at
4: the mercy of climate change if we are willing to act. So I've been to two of three of those over the last few years that you mentioned. You know, sometimes there are these smaller regional sets of initiatives that are in place or sometimes even more locally but we have to have comprehensive strategies to be able to do this. Those comprehensive strategies, one part of it is conservation, and that means that there's education that needs to happen to help people to understand that if we want to be able to continue to have this essential resource, then once again, we've all got to pull together around that. There is also the infrastructure sets of actions that have to be put in place. Uh, and once again, that means that you know uh, folks on both sides of the aisle have to be able to come together to think critically about this. Some people may say, well, Mustafa, I'm not even sure if that's possible. It's possible because you look at some examples like around the Great Lakes, or if you look at the Chesapeake Bay, where you had folks on both sides of the aisle who are willing to come together to be able to clean those up. So we know that there are examples that folks can work together. The question is, will folks work together? Because if we don't, we know that there's a huge swath of our country that depends on those three water bodies um, that you had mentioned earlier. Um, But we literally have some opportunities to be able to mitigate some of that. Will we be able to mitigate everything, uh, you know, with the droughts that are going on, the extreme heat? Um, You know, we are going to continue to lose uh, some of the capacity that's in that space, but we can protect uh, a great deal of it so that uh, people can live the lives, you know, that um, are are incredibly important. And I'll just leave uh, on this particular issue with this. Our indigenous brothers and sisters have continued Uh, to highlight for us that water is life if we know that then let's treat the sets of actions that we have to do like that particular framing uh, requires
0: amen to that well thank you for joining us that was mustafa santiago ali he's the vice president of environmental justice climate and community revitalization at the national wildlife federation you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik stay tuned we'll take a short break and come right back Misfits
1: on Radio Sputnik,
0: where we give you. Hi, John. Yeah, there you are.
1: <laughs> I was muted. Uh, okay. I knew what to say. I pressed the button, though, now. So I want to welcome you back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. John, they're trying to steal my time. We won't let him. We are. Talking a little bit now about the um, energy crisis facing Europe and the United Kingdom and uh, what the political fallout of that is going to be. And as always, every time, every time I check out like what's going on in the UK, it is a terrible, terrible surprise how bad things are. So we're going to get into some of these headlines about the possibility of one Full third of households in the country being pushed into poverty by fuel prices this winter. So joining us to get into all of this is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst. He's also professor emeritus of literature and theory. Sorry, I just move my cursor. Professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thank you for joining us.
5: I'm um, Neil. Welcome.
1: So I, I want to start off in the UK, right? Because I just can't. It boggles my mind every time I sort of dip into the news from there. Bloomberg reported earlier this week that the U.K. is planning out reasonable worst case scenarios that could lead to an energy shortfall of 16 percent of demand and trigger planned blackouts for industries and households. So if the weather is a little colder than usual and energy imports are slightly less than expected this winter, this could come to pass though the UK Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy said in a statement that this is not something they expect to happen. Um, They also would have us to believe they didn't expect uh, huge backup supports after Brexit. So I don't know how much comfort we should take in that statement. These emergency planning scenarios are being sketched out at a time when energy bills are increasing and expected to impoverish as much as a third of the country, at least according to the End Fuel Poverty Coalition. They warned on Tuesday that 10.5 million households could be pushed below the official poverty line by fuel prices this winter, as the average household energy bill is expected to hit more than $4,300 a year from October and more than $5,000 a year from January, right? So that's about $430 a month. Talk to us about what what is going on. Are these scenarios pessimistic? Are they actually not as uh, pessimistic as they should be? And and what kind of energy and social crisis is the UK looking ahead at this winter?
5: I would say, uh, to begin with, that actually uh, the scenario that you've just described represents a view that, in fact, is less pessimistic than it should be. Um, Now, why is this? Uh, First of all... uh, the uh, meteorological situation, the drought is expected to continue until October. So Britain is in the middle of a protracted drought. And then, of course, droughts and heat waves are correlated with uh, extreme consumption of energy resources. People are rushing to stores to buy electric fans air conditioning, and there's not as much air conditioning in Europe as there is in this country, as you know. Um, But even that is being maxed out. So energy consumption is on the rise at the same time. So we're talking about demand, uh, which is at an extreme level. At the same time, the supply, which is meant to be in some sort of equilibrium with demand, or at least near it, is the energy situation is is dire. Now, the number one factor contributing to this is the privatization of the utilities by the Conservative Party. What has happened across the board is that the utilities, especially the uh, power companies, They've put the interests of their shareholders and top management ahead of those of consumers. This is a familiar story. They have not even maintained the grid to a satisfactory standard, and they're compensating for shortfalls basically by engaging in price gouging. So that is the context for uh, the current energy crisis in the United Kingdom.
1: And I mean, what what happens if if come January you see a third of British households pushed below the poverty line just by having to pay their energy bills? You know, what is what's the fallout from this?
5: The fallout, I think, is going to be something akin to a slower rumble. There is already a movement, a protest movement. Do not pay your bills. So a payment strike, I think, it's likely to grow in intensity. Now, a lot will depend on the punitive measures exacted by the power companies and the government, of course, when this power strike um, starts to grow in momentum. So that's likely to happen. People are just not going to be able to pay their bills. So it's, it's not that it's a matter of protest it 's a matter of simple uh, if you like mathematical impossibilities. Um, if you have an electricity bill amounting to the figures that you 've just described thousands of dollars and your monthly income if you are on now if you 're on welfare and we must remember that a third of all the people on welfare in the u k are workers. Um, they're working, but they're not paid a living wage. So these, if you have to pay four or five thousand in the form of your energy bill, and you are making two thousand, let's say, and some people don't even make that, you are simply not going to be able to pay that bill in full. So uh, the thing is. The British body politic is an extremely quiescent one. Jokes are always made about how the Brits are not the friend, uh, not like the French, who will immediately take to the streets and wreak havoc. The Brits, is, Britain is basically, by virtue of its political culture, a nation of lock tuggers. People will just say, stiff upper lip, old boy, old girl, take it on the chin and all that kind of stuff and just believe that, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's a kind of political fatalism uh, about situations like this.
1: Man, that's an awful, awful to contemplate, though. People just sort of slowly being pushed into poverty by, a, you know, a genuine energy crisis uh, exacerbated, of course, by price gouging. It's really sad. I also want to ask you what is happening in the rest of Europe. Uh, I know Spain um, Spain launched or put into effect its um, air conditioning limitations this week. The Wall Street Journal had a story yesterday talking about how public spaces are seeing their energy cuts, so public fountains aren't running anymore in many countries. You have nighttime lighting for statues uh, being eliminated and public pool temperatures being dropped. Uh, that seems like a very painless way to conserve some energy. It does not seem like it is going to be enough to get the continent through the winter. Um, so talk to us about the state of Europe's uh, energy restrictions. And again, like wh- whether they are going to be able to to uh, put themselves in a situation where they're not also having to plan for managed blackouts.
5: Well, now, there is going to be the energy shortfall that you described. And those measures are relatively painless. But as you point out, they are really not going to address the problem front on. I think there will have to be more substantial forms of energy rationing. People are talking about, uh, if you like, staged uh, blackouts where a household will not get power for maybe three or four hours a day et cetera, et cetera, um, I think that could, be, that could be on the horizon. And the thing is, of course, that the, the resources for providing energy, pipelines, power grids, substations, etc., will be operating at maximum capacity. And, of course, when that happens, breakdowns are far more likely than they would if the situation, uh, if the system is operating at a normal level. So that will put an added strain on resources. Half of France's nuclear reactors, and France is the largest producer uh, and consumer of nuclear energy in the world, half of France's reactors, most of which have been built in the 1980s, are out of commission because they are having to be, uh, if you like, um, brought up to a standard that meets demand today. There are huge maintenance issues, and of course, as more pressure is exerted on the grid, these maintenance issues will only be exacerbated. So that's another problem. What else uh, is likely to happen apart from brownouts or staged blackouts I think the other thing that is likely to happen, of course, apart from energy rationing, is, if you like, the scaling back of commitments made to reduce carbon-based energy sources. Uh, There is a section in the UK Tory government which is basically whispering out loud that the UK's commitment to be Fossil-free, by 2050, uh, that's going to have to be uh, reneged upon. And then uh, fracking, uh, which is, if you like, extremely costly in terms of polluting the environment. Uh, Fracking, which was due to be banned, I think, in Britain uh, by next year, uh, that's gone out of the window. So. Will be looking at governments and uh, electorates. Will be looking at energy sources that are much more invidious for the environment. That is bound to happen. As to what else happens, well, you know, this is a situation where where no one in living in living history uh, has encountered the gravity uh, and the scale of this situation, basically creates a kind of new uh, energy territory. And no one knows really what the spill-on effects of this completely novel situation will be. Already, there are two villages in Oxfordshire in England that have run out of running water. Mm -hmm. The, the, The water company is having to bring in water for these villages. Luckily, they're villages and not uh, towns or cities to so that people can basically get water by the bucket. In those villages, um, showers, you're asked to limit your showers two minutes. And what people are saying is, well, you know, if I wash my hair, it's Always going to take, as I shower, it's always going to take more than two minutes. So, you know, this, this is a situation of um, novelty, uh, which people in a modern industrialized society have not encountered before. You know, we associate picking up water by the bucketful with countries in Asia and Africa but not the United Kingdom.
1: You know, on the topic of water, I wanted to ask, you know, Politico today has a a story about the state of European hydropower, noting that high temperatures have caused water levels to drop, the same thing that is going on in the UK. And so the, you know, hydropower is dwindling as a power source. You know, and as you say, all, all of these are combining to, I think, force governments to walk back some of their um, climate pledges. But I mean, that is only going to exacerbate the problem, I think, to some degree of of this drought that they're facing, right?
3: Well,
5: really, they are are kicking the ball down the road, taking these measures that will uh, exacerbate the already dire climate change situation. And by exacerbating that situation, they are just creating bigger problems down the road. So this is, and I know I'm sounding pessimistic, this is simply, if you like, putting off even bigger bigger disasters that are likely to happen. Now, the other thing that is happening, in addition to, if you like, lakes drying out, glaciers drying out, etc., is that the big rivers are also drying out. Uh, Germany is within the, uh, the River Rhine is Germany's main transport artery. Large barges, uh, sometimes almost as big as ships, ply the Rhine. I think you can see, if you stay uh, in a hotel by the Rhine, you can see about one of these uh, huge barges uh, every two minutes. Now, it is reported that Germany, that the Rhine in Germany, uh, will be too shallow for these barges to move along it, um, so that's going to have a very serious impact on transportation costs, which are, are still to be felt by the German economy.
1: And let me ask you, Ken, you you spoke about the the fatalism of the UK body politic, but what about Europe, right? Which is not quite as uh, uh, as acquiescent. Where do you think people are going to direct their frustration? And do do you think that governments are going to be able to sort of create an external boogeyman to blame for these problems, or if if we're going to see some very big political shifts?
5: Of course, the war in Ukraine is being cited by all governments who have been impacted by this as the main contributory factor. Um, And of course, uh, other boogeymen will be created. All it would take is for a Middle Eastern oil-producing country uh, to raise some prices, and then that will be used by politicians in several countries uh, to stoke up Islamophobia, uh, etc., etc. Well, you know, almost certainly, if the situation becomes grave, the already serious situation becomes even graver in countries like France, uh, we can expect people to take to the streets. As for Germany... There is a reluctance of people to do that because of the, uh, um, the Nazi street parades, et cetera, et cetera, associated with Hitler's rise to power. Mainstream politicians don't take to the streets. It's usually the far left and the far right, the so-called troublemakers, if, if you like, uh, who will take to the streets. Um, and I think, you know, they will be dealt with uh, with considerable force. As for the rest of Europe, you know, it's 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 really it's really impossible to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like something. uh, I think a, a lot of inevitable upheaval in the future is is what it sounds like. That was political and foreign affairs analyst Kenneth Surin. He's a Duke University professor. Dr. Surin, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. We are going to skip this last break. John, yep. we've got some breaking news that I am sure you're aware of because I know you get all those New York Times push notifications. But have you seen the breaking news uh, that the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's Florida home, followed a subpoena? Yes. Right. So they had tried to get this information, whatever it was that they were searching for, yeah, through less uh, dramatic means but apparently failed
0: yeah trump ignored them right and now this is of it, course it's it's it, it, all hell's breaking loose on capitol hill uh there's a congressman a republican congressman from florida who just proposed um a law that of course it doesn't have a chance in hell but he proposed a law to expel all federal law enforcement officers from the state of florida and if they do not yeah if they do not leave the state of florida immediately Um, Upon passage of this law, they will be arrested for trespassing.
1: Oh, for the love of God. I mean, I will say this this New York Times story is sourced to, uh, you know, people familiar with the matter. So we'll see if we ever uh, get to see that subpoena. Interesting. uh, Trespassing laws are being uh, deployed here. They you know, usually they've been sort of corralled as a way to further criminalize homelessness and protest. And so, once again, interesting to see elements of of the right, you know, turning these tools against, you know, who we who we would perceive as their own. I don't really I don't expect any of this to stick. I will say no, I agree. it is sort of funny to watch. I don't think it represents a change of heart or anything or like a dawning on these people of the the problems of of law enforcement and uh, and overreach in this country. But it is, you know, it it is a little comedy, right? And, Days where we have some pretty pretty bad environmental, energy, and political news. You
0: know, there there's some other interesting political news. We covered a story uh, several weeks ago about our friend Matthew Ho, who was the Green Party uh, nominee for the United States Senate in the state of uh, North Carolina, and the DNC uh, filed um, suits that forced him off the ballot. Not just Matthew, but the Libertarian candidate for. Uh, U.S. Senate as well. Well, just in the last hour, a federal judge in North Carolina has ordered that Matthew be returned to the ballot as well as the libertarian nominee. Uh, The judge said that this move by the DNC was was anti-democratic and that voters have a right to choose who they want to represent them in the U.S. Senate. All right. Yeah, that was good. And there's another there's another little bit of of pseudo political news that I thought you'd get a kick out of. You remember, of course, uh, Kaylee McEnany, who was Donald Trump's uh, spokesperson the last year or so of, uh, of the Trump administration, or her sister, Ryan has just come out with a new dating app for conservatives, only for conservatives. It's called the right stuff. And she says in the intro, we're sorry that you've had to endure years of bad dates and wasted time with people who don't see the world our way, the right way. And now you can download it wherever you download your apps.
1: Are you going to download it, John?
0: Uh, No, thank you. (laughs) No. You know, I I, I was, when I was on the dating apps, and I'm not now, but uh, when I was on, I put in my profile, Trump supporters, please swipe left. There's no sense in, in wasting each other's time, you know. So, yeah, it's easier that way.
1: You know, I think we forgot to mention um, also some good news for Joe Biden on gas prices. Yeah. You seeing this? Gas prices down 20% from their high in June. There's about, I think they dipped under... Four dollars a gallon. Yeah. According to Triple A today, which is still higher than they were last year. But, you know, again, maybe might be tied with Joe Biden's approval recovering to
0: some degree, to some degree. There's a a poll that's out today by Rasmussen that has him now at forty five percent. You know, I went to uh, southwestern Virginia last weekend. I just felt like I needed to get out of town. And I I've always wanted to see Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, where the civil war ended. And so I just got in the car and I drove down there and I filled up for three fifty dollars a gallon. And that was a week ago. Um, y- you posted a, uh, an article, I think it was from the New York Times, about gas prices. And gas prices have, act- have actually fallen for 58 consecutive days. and it's usually a fraction of a penny, but 58 consecutive days. So thank goodness it looks like it really is coming. Up.
1: Not coming down. Rents. No. I mean, we know this. This isn't necessarily breaking news, but the Wall Street Journal has a story out today about rents in New York City hitting an all time high in June, reaching $3,500 a month, right? In Manhattan, rents are uh, up over $4,000 a month. But of all these neighborhoods, Street Easy collects rent data. Um, of all of the New York neighborhoods that Street Easy collected data from, Twenty had median asking rents of four thousand dollars for one bedroom apartment, a one bedroom apartment costing you four thousand dollars a month. You have to be earning a decent salary to even bring home four thousand dollars a month total. I mean, it is unbelievable how this is just the gap between someone who can pay that and anyone working like a regular job in the rest of the country is so profound. It's really hard to it's hard to see how this continues without some like complete social breakdown. Or I guess we just all roll over and accept that nobody ever gets to buy a home again. We just rent. But you can't even rent. Yeah, I don't I can't get my head I can't get my head around four thousand dollars for a one bedroom apartment. I mean, that is that's so upsetting to me. Yeah,
0: that, that's truly incredible. Yeah, I, I couldn't. Oh man, I couldn't uh, we it.
1: should should we leave the, the listeners with five seconds to know that there's a new virus? There's a new virus that, yeah, that I, they don't really have I to worry about because you only get it if you get bitten by a shrew, right? <laughs> <laughs> so don't, I, I think that's it. It's in China. Don't try and tame any shrews and you'll be safe from this new virus and we won't have to talk about it. So just don't, don't do that, people. Don't get it and have it mutate and spread between people and we'll all be fine. Do your part, leave the shrews alone. When I saw the picture of the shrew, for a moment, I was
0: like, what the heck animal is that now? Now, what do we have to worry about?
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, shrews, they've always been there. Hey, we got to leave it there. We're going to run out of time. I want to say thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you all for listening. We will see you tomorrow.